Hi, I'm Lisa. Welcome to Pillontology, the pod about the wild and wonderful worlds of prescription pill medication. Every epi, I'll feature a pill and talk to a friend, or maybe not a friend, about their experience on that pill. Also a disclaimer, I'm not a doctor or a pharmacist, although sometimes I like to pretend that I am. Hope you enjoy. So, Pillantology, this is our SSRI Chronicles, and today we're doing Sertaline, or Sertraline, and uh, the brand name is Zoloft. Zoloft treats depression, anxiety, social phobia, OCD, panic, celebrities take it, Sarah Silverman, Dr. Melfi on I'm The in Sopranos. I'm good company, I guess. You are. Um... She takes it IRL, the therapist on The Sopranos. Um, So today we have Jay Wang, Jenny, (laughs) and Jenny has been taking Zoloft since she was 19. She is 29 now? 30. I just turned 30 in May. Oh, right. May 5th. But I still pretend I'm in my 20s, so it's okay. You can say 29. Are you a Gemini? No, I'm a Taurus. Oh. Stubborn. Interesting. I could see that. Yeah. Do you believe in any of that? I'd like to. My friends bought two of my friends separately mm. bought me astro- uh, astrology books for my birthday. So that says something, I guess, about what I like. <laughs> yeah, you do seem you seem like you would like it. Yeah. Um so Jenny's been taking Zoloft since she was 19 and she is on 50 milligrams. And you take it in the morning? I take it every morning. Sometimes I forget. Um, but yeah, most mornings, 95% of the time I take it. And what prompted you to start taking it at 19? Yeah. So I have always been, um, a more anxious neurotic and Sally knows me. So she knows that I, you know, I'm a, what they call a more high functioning anxious person, right? So it propels me to work really hard and try to be successful and forge my career path. So I I call it high function anxiety because I think it actually serves me well and has served me well in the corporate world. Um, so I've Sally always... is a friend of the pod, for those who haven't listened to yes. previous episodes. She's on episode two. Yes. And so um, for most of my life, I always felt like I did have a, you know, an anxious, sometimes melancholic side. Um, when I was 13 or 14, um, because I grew up in a very small town where I was the only Asian Um, in my grade and I felt very different and I think that contributed to you know my my feelings of being anxious and depressed and whatnot Um, I did try Lexapro actually for just a couple weeks when I was 14 and then I don't remember why I I stopped taking them but that was my first foray so your immigrant parents took you to a psychiatrist that's very forward-thinking and that took convincing my dad to this day he's a philosophy professor to this day, he's very much like power over thought, be, you know, don't be a victim, be strong, etc. So, so um, basically for, uh, anyways, at 19, I was feeling some feelings of, of depression. I think it was what, uh, sophomore year of college, 19, yeah, sophomore year of college, um, feeling depression, just feeling, it's like almost like a feeling of, um, 
sometimes just being overwhelmed a little bit, and maybe that's also anxiety. So anyways, I went to uh, a psychiatrist, and they prescribed me with 50 milligrams of Zoloft, which obviously, as Lisa said, is, is the um, name brand for sertraline. And 50 milligrams is just for context, it's, very, it's a very low amount. Um, usually they, they start off people at, a, I think, a lower amount and then they might build up or, you know, obviously they might change it. But um, I've been taking 50 milligrams now for the last 11 years uh, and that's not, that hasn't changed. And 50 is so small that now I, I wonder if it's um, more of a placebo effect now. Um, I don't know if it's actually affecting me. It's been with me and in my body and in my system for so long. You are Zoloft. Well, or Zoloft is me, right? So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But it's been, it's been what now? Um, over a third of my life that I've been taking it. So. So you said your sophomore year is when you decided to present to the psychiatrist at yeah. school. Um, did you... And a you private s- psychiatrist, not the one at school. Okay. Yeah. Why did you choose a private one? I don't know. I don't think our school psychiatrist could prescribe, but I don't remember. I think did it just... Did you go to Lehigh or... No, Junietta. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if they were like a psychiatrist or just a psychologist who couldn't prescribe. I have no idea. But yeah, it was private. Um, so you said you had feelings of being overwhelmed with everything that was going on around you. Um, and then some depressed feelings. What did the depression manifest as? Now looking back, I think a lot of it was actually like social anxiety, um, which I still have some, which is so funny because even people who know me well, um, you know, I come off as super extroverted, super social. I have a wide, you know, network of friends, etc. They would never guess that I'm a socially anxious person sometimes, but I do have that kind of, um, and it was worse when I was younger, that kind of anxiety where even though I was extroverted on the outside, it would make me really anxious to walk into the college dining hall, right, and know that, you know, people, people, are might, looking people at you. might be looking at me, like super self-conscious kind of thing, and that's, I guess, you know, uh, social anxiety, and that that kind of thing kind of contributed to then feelings of maybe sadness or being overwhelmed or like whatever it was quite quite honestly it it seems like it was so long ago that it's hard for me to exactly remember but um I'm sure that there's been times where I've confused social anxiety with depression or they've bled into each other I think they're two sides of the same coin um how much of it do you think is being a first generation oh you're not first generation you were born in In China. China so my kids will be First generation. First generation, yeah. Uh, how much of that anxiety do you think was predicated on the fact that you are an immigrant and you were the only Asian person growing yeah. up in your school? Was it in your school or like yeah. one of yeah, the Yeah, in my ones? brain. I think it's a couple of things. And I've, I'm someone who's very um, self-analytical and introspective and I like to think about, okay, why am I the way I am? Why are people the way they are? Nature versus nurture. What happened to somebody? Like I like to really think about these things. And I think there's a couple of things. A, I did grow up feeling like an outsider, a foreigner, different, weird. Um, and shout as, out to Olga Kazan. Shout out to that, that wonderful journalist book. who wrote a book called Weird about growing up as a Russian immigrant in Texas yeah. and being an outsider. And so as a kid, the worst possible thing is to be different, right? You can embrace being different, and I've embraced 
whatever my uniqueness later on in life. But as a kid, um, the worst possible thing is to be different and to be set apart from others. You, you just want to fit in. So I'm sure a lot of the anxiety and depression came from that. Um, in middle school, I was bullied, I think, because of being Chinese. I remember in seventh grade, a good friend of mine then went with me, I remember, to the principal's office to, like, literally tell on a, a group of kids that had been bullying me. Mm-hmm. Um, so feeling like that outsider, that foreigner, and whatever, obviously contributed to the feelings of anxiety and... Wanting am to I, fit in. Am I accepted? Am I weird? How weird am I? You know, that sort of thing. I think another part of it is not to get, you know, too in the weeds, but um, when I was born in China, I had not... And so we're getting into attachment theory a little bit, which I... I love attachment theory. Which I've explored, which I have read a lot about, and... Should we plug it? So attachment theory is the way in which you attach to your mother or whoever your mother figure is in infancy... Uh, dictates how you are in other relationships going forward in your life. Yeah. So these unconscious attachments that you form to your mom um, basically inform how you are with other people. Yeah. And if your mom was withholding, for example, you, you could have an anxious attachment style because you never know whether somebody is willing to actually be honest with you or not. Or if your mom was overbearing, then you also can have an anxious attachment Mm -hmm. style. I think so. The breakdown is just for the general population. It's like 60% are secure attachment, 20% are avoidant, 20% are anxious. Sometimes there are anxious avoidance, you know, there are, there are cross-offs. But, yeah, but um, I'm definitely an anxious attachment style. I, that has definitely influenced who I am and, and anxiety and all of those because I was born, my dad left right after, right after I was born to come to the U.S. to study, uh, to get his Ph.D., he didn't. He left literally after I was born. Didn't see me again until I was four when I came to the U.S. My mom left a year later from China. Came here to also get her Ph.D. Left me as a baby. One, I was one, and then didn't see me again until I was four. And but you were with your grandparents. I was with my grandparents, and I had a nanny. Right. Um, so you had loving people you could attach to. Yes, but as a toddler. But then at four, I remember. I still remember it because it was so traumatic. Being. Basically, you know, taken from whatever I knew, which was the nanny and the and the, my grandparents, and being put on a plane and t- said, "You're going to the U.S. You're going. Here's your mom and dad, but they're basically strangers." Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember I was told that like the first few weeks I would cry whenever my dad even entered the room. I was scared of him mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I I think I attached my mom right away when I came here, but. Um, you know, that interruption as well, I, I do wonder what that did to my psyche because obviously what how what happens to you and your experiences as a toddler are so, in your formative years, are so influential on obviously your attachment style, how you are, how you relate to other people. On any pathology you a- have. Or, anything. Yeah. Um, and so I remember it being very traumatic because I remember being at the airport and I remember my grandparents crying, my nanny crying, being taken from them, screaming, making a big scene. You at remember the, this? I do, making a big scene at the airport. I was brought over with some a couple of like a family friends who were basically strangers who were also coming to the U.S. and they kind of sh- chaperoned me. Um, you know, just a very terrifying, traumatic thing for a little kid. And I don't, I don't want to be all you know, woe is me. Um, I don't want to have a victim mentality, but I do think that um, having those kinds of interruptions um, as a young child then obviously influenced me to also be 
a little bit more more neurotic, a little bit more anxious, more vigilant about more your vigilant, anxious attachment style, fear of abandonment, mm-hmm. right? I, I find that I still have that in in my adult uh, romantic relationships. I've had, you know, more boyfriends than I can count. No, I'm kidding. A lot of boyfriends um, throughout the years, and fear of abandonment or that insecurity or the all the things that come with an anxious attachment style uh, can make it difficult sometimes to have a sustaining relationship. So anyways, the, the point is, is I do think that that also has influence in, in caused me to, to have, you know, anxiety or whatever it is. I was wondering, as you're describing all of this attachment stuff, how do your immigrant parents take to you ever saying that you experienced any trauma or that you have any mental health issues? Yeah, I think sometimes they recognize it. I think they do recognize it and they say it wasn't the best of circumstances. It was hard, you know, but, you know, mind you, it was also very hard for them. My parents came from, I mean, China was was dirt poor when they were growing up, but they were, um, you know, they they had a, a relatively, compared to other Chinese, pretty comfortable in China. My dad then decided to still come here to start, study Western philosophy, came here with very little money, left his wife, left his newborn child, was in a new country learning a, a, a new language in his 30s, doing his PhD. Was your that, mom his student? In that, no, no. Okay. They met in grad school like classmates. But doing his PhD in a, in a third language, starting a new life, honestly having the guts that I would never be able to have in my 30s, just starting new and leaving everything behind and doing a PhD in a, in a second language, like to me that's crazy. And, um, you know, and he was, as part of his graduate stipend, because he came here with so little money, because back then Chinese money translating to U.S. money was literally nothing. This mm-hmm. was before China's boom. Um, you know, he was scrubbing toilets, doing janitorial stuff so he could have um, free meals in the dining halls. Like he was very much working hard, living the, the immigrant work ethic kind of, kind of life. So I don't begrudge him or I don't, you know, I just want to put into perspective that it's not, it wasn't just hard for you. It wasn't just hard for me. It was hard for them too. Do you ever feel like guilty that you can't live up to, or not that you can't, but that they've done so much to put you here and to give you a good life? And does the depression make you feel guilty? That's an interesting question. So am I grateful to my parents for working really hard and quite frankly, working hard in a way that I will never have to work hard in the sense that, yes, I work hard, but I've never had to clean a toilet. Mm -hmm. I've never had to wait on a table. You know, like I work hard, but it's, it's in a corporate setting, right? I know that they're very proud of me of where I am today. Um, being a young, you know, vice president at a PR agency who is, you know, really Successful. Wor- working with, with, with good clients, has good head on my shoulders for the most part, you know, um, who, who, you know, is responsible and trying to build security and, and real estate and all of that. Like, they're very proud of that. Um, in terms of the guilt part, it's not so much guilty for about in relation to them, I think, any guilt that I might have is more of just recognition of, okay, I'm very privileged. I have a nice salary. I have a nice job. I live in the, the, the capital of the world's richest country. I own several properties. I have all these privileges, right? Even during COVID, the fact that I can work from home, that is a privilege mm-hmm. that many don't have. Um, right, I, I do feel p- guilty when I'm like, okay, why am I sad? I have so much 
compared to so many of the world. You know, you have one billion people in the world who don't even have clean drinking water. So, you know, it's not the Suffering Olympics, but sometimes it, I do feel bad when I put it into perspective and I'm like, I have so much compared to so many. You feel like your plight is not worthy. Yeah, sometimes. Um, you said at, when you went to the psychiatrist at 19, you said you were experiencing social anxiety. And maybe it was depression, maybe it was something more, but at the time, that's, that's how yeah. it manifested. And I think it was just an overall, like, it was like a, I would describe it as a heavy feeling. Like, you almost feel like your heart feels a little heavy. Mm-hmm. Like, you just feel kind of weighed down. Right? Like, that kind of, like, heavier feeling. That's how I would describe it. How do you think you honed the self-awareness to know what you were feeling, to know to go to a psychiatrist uh, alone at college when your experience in the past was not really acknowledged? I think two things. A, I've always been a, a voracious reader, and so that means that I have... I probably have been exposed to people who've written memoirs about mental health issues or um, just been more open to the idea of how important it is to talk about mental health. I think just reading and being aware of what's going on in the world generally made me more open to that in the first place. I've always been a voracious reader. I think... um, What's your favorite mental health memoir? Mental health memoir. I think I wrote Prozac Nation a long time ago, but I cannot... I honestly can't remember... Just of lots of things informed your Yeah, Eat, Pray, Love. I don't. I know it's not a mental health memoir, but I kind of almost see it as a mental health memoir because it is about, you know, she's in a rut, she's on the her bathroom floor crying, and then she goes on this journey of self-discovery. And so, yeah, I, maybe Eat, Pray, Love. But um, And the other thing is I think I've always been a good advocate for myself. I have never been the type to be afraid of what I'm feeling, not express how I'm feeling. Um, you know, I'm not afraid to advocate for myself in general. That's really cool. I'm precocious for 19. Yeah. Um, do you go to therapy to have some sort of like reflective lens to look at your life? Yeah. So therapy is also something I've kind of dabbled in and out of over the years. Um, a few years ago I was, um, I remember going to a therapist in person for a little while and I would just talk about you know my sometimes having like OCD thoughts and and things like like that um at the time I was in a relationship and I felt like if there was a thought that that had to do with the relationship that bothered me like oh did he do this did he mean this did he whatever I just felt like it was always replaying in my head and I just wanted it to stop kind of thing because I knew it was um basically sabotaging the relationship. I was self-sabotaging the relationship. Um, So I went to this guy, but, you know, I think a therapist is kind of like dating. Finding a therapist is kind of like dating. And a lot of my friends expressed this to me. You're not going to vibe with every single therapist. You kind of also have to figure out, okay, is this therapist the right one for me? Do they understand me? Do I feel like they click? You know, that sort of thing. And so, anyways, I didn't end up going super long with this guy because I, I, he was a very nice guy, but I didn't know or feel like I was necessarily clicking with him, I guess. Um, and then, uh, a couple of years ago I did try, uh, I think it's called Talkspace, the, the app mm-hmm. where you pay a couple hundred bucks and you have a virtual, basically teletherapy, right? Virtual therapist where you can text with them every day, 
um, how you're feeling, and you might have a video call now and now that and again. So robotic. And I didn't, and I didn't last long on it because it, then it ended up feeling like a chore. Like she would text me, and then I didn't respond, and then she'd text me again, and then I'd feel guilty, you know. And then I was like, oh my god, now I have to text her back, but I don't want to talk about it. I don't know what to say. It's kind of like it was just like another chore, another thing. So I was like, I can't, I can't do this, but. Um, so yeah, I've dabbled with therapy in an, in a little bit over the years, but right now I'm not. Um, I also feel like I've been in a good headspace the last couple of years. Headspace. Headspace. Brought to you by Headspace. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that the last, and you know me, Lisa, the last year and a half I've been um, not in any serious relationships, whereas before that, throughout my 20s and even late teens, I always had a boyfriend, always was going from boyfriend to boyfriend, you know, kind of thing. And I think in the last year and a half, I've really become, and my friends have noticed this too, more independent, more comfortable being by myself, being alone. Don't get me wrong, I I get lonely right now, but, um, you know, I think I'm just in a better headspace in general right now where I'm like, anything that happens, I can handle it. I've gone through some shit and like now I'm good and and I'm I'm not as worried about whatever comes next kind of thing. Do you think the Zoloft helps ease the blows? Maybe, but I've also been on it for so long that I don't, I don't know, you know. Do you remember how it made you feel initially? I think if anything it was just a slight effect it like it mutes you a little bit mm-hmm. or mutes your feelings or it softens your feelings a little bit. I don't think I noticed anything major to be honest um and then over the years I think it just became a like a placebo thing but one thing I will say is I've also learned that it's so important especially if you're somebody who's already prone to anxiety or depression at times or you're just a you're a more emotional sensitive person which I am it's so important to be with somebody who can be a more of a steadying effect on you um, you know, mental health is, is very much, you know, human emotions are, they're contagious, right? And I remember in my last relationship, um, the guy I was dating, we were very serious and it moved very quickly. I think we dated for a year and a half and he lived with me and, you know, all this stuff. And he's a good guy, but he had very serious mental health issues. He had very bad depression, like very, very bad, where I was like, very worried about him there were times where a couple times where I like called his mom because I was so worried oh it's like your therapy your talk space therapist yeah (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) you become worried about the other person yeah and it it definitely affected my mental health Mm -hmm. a lot like him being depressed and him always treating everything like like it was the end of the world or nothing's gonna get better or having just this this such a sad outlook on life just made me weighed me down so much yeah. You know, and it wasn't sustainable because, you know, he wasn't really, I think, willing to really do the work on himself either. And I literally thought to myself, I, I can't build a future or have a life with somebody who is going to be like this. Because inherently, even though sometimes I can be sad, sometimes I, in the past I've had depression, I can be, I am an anxious, neurotic person. But I'm also inherently actually an optimistic person and I see the futility in life, but it's almost because... I'm not super religious and I know that life is fleeting and that none, some of this is really futile and meaningless. It's almost because I see that that I find meaning and that I value life more. I almost take an opposite approach. So, Interesting. You know, Do you discuss that with your dad 
ever? A little bit, yeah. I mean, existentialism, and he's obviously he's a philosophy professor, so it's like, what's the meaning of life, and why are we here, and how do you derive meaning when you don't believe in an afterlife, and you think that we're just here for X amount of time, you know? What's the point of all of this? Does he know that you're on antidepressants now? I think they know that I'm still on it, but we just, we haven't talked about it. It's not even that I keep it from them on purpose, it's like, I don't even think about it. It's not in their yeah. purview, your purview. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you said that you felt muted a little bit, but not so much so that it's like yeah. very noticeable. Do you wonder what life would be like without anti-Ds? I do. I have thought over the years, there's been a couple times where I've thought about going off of it just because... We don't know the long-term, really long-term side effects of these drugs. Um, I've read research and, and studies and, and whatever showing there is a lack of research and data and studies that, uh, in terms of people who've taken it for decades just because the, uh, the proliferation of these drugs didn't happen until relatively more recently in history, right? So I don't know how I'll feel after if I take this for 30 years. And right. I am a little bit afraid of that. And the people selling these drugs don't really care how it's going to affect people individually. They yeah. care about the bottom line. Yeah. Um, and so I do think about when I should come off of them. But then you always, in your mind, because it's, you know, like a placebo thing and you're, you've become mentally a little bit reliant on it, I guess, subconsciously, that you're kind of like, okay, well, what if I feel really bad? What if then I don't want to get out of bed? Or what if I feel not like myself, quote-unquote? Um, you know, you are afraid. And then it's also like, well, right now I'm going through this transition, so maybe I wait until I'm in a better place. Or maybe I wait until I find the right person. Or maybe I wait until what? Then you're, like, thinking, okay, maybe, maybe now is not the be best time to, you know, come off of it. Um, We're like an addict a little bit. I'm not calling you an addict. I'm yeah. just saying that's sort of, it's sort of similar. It's like, okay, not today, but maybe tomorrow when I'm feeling better or next yeah. year when, after I'm pregnant, you know? Yeah. Um, um, and I know that, you know, I mean, I want to have kids in the future. I know that, um, I think they say that it's okay for pregnant women to take SSRIs. And in fact, they encourage it, especially for those who have more serious, you know, mental health disorders, you know, that's also something to think about as well. Do you think that had you never taken them, you would have accustomed to life in a similar manner? I would like to think yes, but I don't know. You know what I mean? That's the thing, you don't know. There's not like some parallel universe or dimension where I can witness a Jenny that never took a Zoloft and see where she, she would end up or what she'd be like. I would like to think that I am inherently who I am at my core, no matter what. Um, well, personality, they say, stays stable across a lifespan, regardless of antidepressants or Yeah, not. which is scary because we know a lot of assholes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, the one time I did try to come off of Zoloft, it was actually junior year of college, so I had only been on it for a year. I was in a what I thought was a happy relationship. Then I went abroad. Oh, I stopped taking it right before I went abroad. And being apart from the person that I was madly in love with in college, being in a new place, and I was, it was in England, it was northern England, it was January when I got there, it was really cold, I didn't see sun there for like months, mm -hmm. um, totally threw me off and I got really depressed. Um, and so then I remember I had my dad fill my prescription and send me Zoloft to England because 
Um, I was feeling, you know, I think just out of sorts with being in a new place, missing the person I was dating. Oh my gosh, that's so Prozac Nation. Yeah. That's what happens to Elizabeth Wurzel. She gets really depressed, studying abroad in England. Uh, I don't remember that. Now I need to read it. Well, we got got to book club it. Yeah. Um, Here's the question. Who would you want to play you in the movie of your life? That's funny. Unfortunately, there's not that many Asian American actresses. She can be non-Asian. Or he. Or he. Who would I like to play me? Even though she looks nothing like me, maybe Olivia Munn because she's kind of Asian looking. Yeah. (laughs) She is. She's a little Asian looking. Yeah, she's not a great actress though. I like Aquafina as an actress a lot. Do I like how she... Do I think she and I look alike? No. And you have um, different styles. We have different styles. She's very, like... I feel like Aquafina could play me. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but but she's more... No, Steve Buscemi would play me. I could see that. Yeah. Steve Buscemi's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, I think that the obvious one is um, the girl in Crazy Rich Asians. What's her name? Um, I don't know. But... Um, what else is she in? She's in Fresh Off the Boat and, like, a couple of a couple other movies? things. Yeah. Um... What the hell's her name? And Hustler. She was in Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez. Anyways, I can't remember her Jennifer name. Jennifer Lopez. Constance Wu. Oh, okay. Oh, no. If I could have anyone play me, Jennifer Lopez. She's on antidepressants, so perfect. Oh, is she? Uh, one hundo. How do you know? I did some research for Pillantology. Her, Kendall Jenner, Cara Delevingne. I know, I know Kendall is, but I didn't know Jennifer Lopez is. Huh. Well, she is my, like, animal goddess, inner animal, you know, spirit animal. Yeah. She's extra, and I like she it. She is. I could also see, like, Nicole Richie back in the day, or... Like anorexic Nicole Richie? No. <laughs> no, like Simple Life Nicole Richie. Oh, God, I hope not. She was so trashy. She had she skunk highlights. Honestly, I would want Paris Hilton to play me. I'd rather Paris Hilton play me than Nicole Richie, because she was... You have Paris Hilton aesthetic, like... A lot of pink. We're looking around my apartment right now. There's a lot of velvet, pink, yeah. uh, chandelier, gold. gold. It's gaudy. <laughs> it's hot. Yeah. That's hot. It's a little extra. It's a little extra. Um, so my last question is, if you were to meet yourself in college now, would you recommend that little you go on Zoloft? If I could talk to little Jenny, which is so weird to, to say, little Jenny, um, yes, why not? Because 19-year-old Jenny, your life turned out fine. Um, no regrets. No regrets. You've turned out fine. Um, you're, for the most part, thriving. So why not? You are thriving. <laughs> Only children immigrants. True. All right, Pillantology, we are out. Peace. Bye.